you shouldn't shave but cultivate your down and let it grow so when you do return twill be soft and white as snow your lovely jane will be surprised to all begin to cook the greenhorn to his mother will say how savage i must look Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at uh, the next part, the next section, the next 100 pages of Francis Parkman Jr.'s The Conspiracy of Pontiac in the Indian War After the Conquest of Canada. That's the full name of it. It was published in two volumes, so I'll be finishing up with volume one today. My last episode, I got cut off a little bit early because I had some some guests and, and rather than kind of stop recording and, and come back to it. I just said, all right, we'll stop there. We had a, uh, a good coverage of, of kind of the context, the setup, the perp reasons for Pontiac's revolt. Everything from the defeat of the French, the handover of forts, the feeling among Indians that British settlement would follow, the anger about that, um, and uh, the belief that the French were still there and could still be a historic ally that could help the help the the Indians as they had, if not help, but at least been uh, in cooperation with them militarily, you know, with the French for, for quite a while, including in the Seven Years' War um, and all that. And what I really didn't get to talk about much, um, by the way, there's a great chapter here, it's chapter eight, no, chapter seven, called The Anger of the Indians, The Conspiracy, which really is a great summary of the, the causes of the of the conflict um but who i haven't really talked about yet is pontiac so we're we're a third episode into this five episode series on this pretty lengthy book now i haven't even got to the the main protagonist of of this the man who organized it so let's let's say let's look at what uh, parkman has to say about him well uh pontiac was the the chief the 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 head of the ottawas the, the most powerful chief among the ottawas and he was and, and as the chief of the of the Ottawa, he was sort of the head of a confederacy that included Ojibwe's and Potawatomi's and a few other tribes. And this gave him kind of the foundation of his his power. He would eventually make connections with the Delaware, other Algonquins, the Seneca, and the Wyandots. And and I'm sure there's some others uh, that that I've forgotten. But you know, quite a big uh, coalition gets formed. Um, and anyways, here's a little bit of what Parkman says about him. Uh, the fact that Pontiac was born a, the son of a chief would in no degree account for the extent of his power. For among Indians, many a chief's son sinks back into insignificance, while the offspring of a common warrior may succeed to his place. Among all the wild tribes of the continent, personal merit is indispensable to gaining or preserving dignity. Courage, resolution, address, and eloquence are sure passports to distinction. With all these, Pontiac was preeminently endowed. And it was chiefly to them, urged to their highest activity by a, a vehement ambition that he owed his greatness. He possessed a commanding energy and force of mind, and a subtlety and craft could match the best of his wily race. But through capable, though capable of acts of magnanimity, he was a thorough savage with a wider range of intellect than those around him, but sharing all their passions and prejudices, their fierceness and treachery. His faults were the fault of his race. 
and they cannot eclipse his nobler, nobler qualities. His memory is still cherished among the remnants of many Algonquin tribes, and, it's, and the celebrated Tecumseh adopted him for a model, proving himself no unworthy imitator. Uh, I don't know if we want to call Tecumseh an uh, imitator, but of course Tecumseh is going to try a similar coalition during the War of 1812 in the same region, hoping again kind of to achieve the same goals, but in a very, very much more desperate sort of situation than even Pontiac was facing. So a few things here. And I mean, again, we get the race, racial uh, language here that's troublesome, but certainly of its, of its time. And, you know, and I, I still think by and large, Francis Parkman does a pretty good job of, of, of giving the Indian point of view here, about as good as we can expect in this this time he does care a lot of has a lot of sympathy he sympathizes with their overall strategy he sympathizes with their their motives even uh even though he he can't help but but fall into this language of, of savage or 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 whatever or treachery that's the other one the the, the use of treachery um uh, in fact there's a chapter in here called the treachery of pontiac which is uh a, really a, a narrative of his strategy in the, the siege of Detroit, which is where Pontiac spent most of the rebellion, uh, that major battle. That was like the, the, the cornerstone. Many other forts were attacked or, or destroyed. Many other settlements were, were, were attacked. But Detroit was the, the centerpiece of the, that's the one they had to take if the, if the rebellion itself would have succeeded. Um, but the chapter is called The Treachery of, of Pontiac. And, you know, using the strategies, using the the tactics that are available to you as a underdog, uh, you know, rooted in your military culture, rooted in your your way of life. You know, even Parkman doesn't really blame them for that. He realizes that these strategies, which from the English point of view, were treacherous, you know, sneak attacks, uh, deceit, like meetings under false pretenses, you know, like coming, pretending to trade and then, you know, bringing out the tomahawk. These types of strategies were used, and Parkman describes many of these these attacks in quite a lot of detail. In fact, uh, much of the center part of this book is a, accounts of different battles and sieges and, and fights and massacres. And you can read it or not. I think uh, there's a lot of wonderful little stories that pop up. I think Parkman's very good at that as a historian of, of, of creating larger-than-life figures, just as he did in the Oregon Trail. I think in his historical work, too, he's really good at creating these figures that stand out um, quite vividly. Um, and, he, and a lot of it's narrative uh, about these people and these events. But anyways, my point is Pontiac can't, and even Parkman doesn't really blame him. It's just the language he uses is troublesome, the language of treachery. It's not treachery when you're in a life or death struggle to to use whatever tactics available you to, to you to win a battle. So... I don't like that, but nevertheless, there's some important stuff here about how Pontiac was rose, and he, you know, Parkman did set this up back in chapter one when he talked about the political culture of of the Algonquins and the Iroquois, but especially the Algonquins in this case, and that is the importance of the of the heroic figure, the great hunter, the great warrior, uh, and how you needed that if you're going to achieve political political power, right? So, not democracies, certainly, you do have. Author, you know, figures of authority, but uh, that authority is rested in in some kind of consent based on respect, right? Um, and certainly seeing Pontiac as an ambitious, talented, uh, brilliant leader, and I think we got to give Parkman credit for acknowledging that. And, and certainly Pontiac 
was those things. Um, you know, 50 years old, past his prime perhaps, but capable of using his language, using his words to unify the tribes. And, uh, the, you know, Parkman is able to get some record of these speeches he gives uh, to various groups, uh, like the Canadian Indians he's talking to at one point, and other groups where he, you know, at a council, where they agree to this rebellion. You know, it's, it's fused together by Pontiac's personality. And that's, um, you know, and that's true of Tecumseh too, I think. Although I, it's been a while since I read too much about him. So I think we, we, we know the reasons for Pontiac's revolt, by least, at least according to Parkman. And, and you know, I, I'll confess, I haven't read a single history of Pontiac's revolt that I remember. Um, so this is really the only full-length work I've, I've read. I've come across it, of course, in other works. Um, but this, you know, and maybe it, this has been reinterpreted and revised and all that later since then. But I, I think the basic outline holds up. Um, chapter eight is called Indian Preparation. And this, uh, this is actually a pretty key chapter too. Like what, what did the Indians have at their disposal? What did Pontiac's forces have at their disposal? And one thing they had was a fair degree of unity. They had uh, support from many tribes. The problem was, and this would be key to its defeat eventually, is that these communities were they were they were based on moral suasion. The un the Confederacy, to the degree it was united, was united along some degree of personality and and that kind of conviction. And that was easily broken apart when defeats or frustration fell in. Right, like really, what happens? I would even say. They weren't militarily defeated. Uh, the sense I, I finally finished this this book, and I don't get the sense of a, of a crushing military defeat at any point. You could say that this battle put an end to Pontiac's rebellion. What happened was they just got like the sieges dragged on without trade. You know, Indian lives became more and more disrupted, and that at that toll of just like the, the length of the war dragged on. You know, it, different groups would make different deals and make different peace treaties with with the English. And especially after it was clear the French weren't coming. Um, but at the, initially, at least, they had that that uh, unity. They had the element of surprise, essentially. It wasn't something the English were expecting. Even the commanders seemed surprised when the first stirrings. We actually get a story of, of one commander who who actually was told from by... A, a friendly Indian, as he's described, of the uprising. And he's kind of like, well, maybe it's just the local tribes. He sent a report to his superiors, but nothing really happens of it. So it's they had a fair degree of surprise. And the goal was, the tactic was destroy the forts quickly, which would leave the frontier then open to attack. Um, and that was the hope. And it didn't come to pass. What, you know, essentially those forts held long enough for, for, for the English to defend themselves. But Parkman seems to think that, you know, this could have went another way. And, and he doesn't, you know, that's not the job of historians though, to write counterfactual history. But he certainly thinks that, you know, Pontiac was not irrational. He wasn't crazy to, to try to affect this. That there was good reason to believe that the loosely, weakly held garrisons in the, in the West could be overrun. Uh, the fact that they just weren't, though, um, and the siege of Detroit proved that. But the, the capture of various other um, posts, garrisons, 
did take place. So there were many successes of, of the rebellion. And it certainly was brutal. Uh, that's another, I think, theme you get when you read the second half of this book. It's just how brutal, how bloody, how ferocious the, this conflict was. Um, you know, whole villages are being massacred. And when we get to the Paxton boys, which is, I'll do that in the next episode. That'll be my focus in the next episode is the Paxton boys. But, you know, genocidal war in some cases against, against the Indians by, in that case, by, by, by settlers. So next, chapter nine, we have the council at the River, River Ecorus. And so this is the, the meeting of, of that Pontiac arranges to, to get these tribes together right, bef right before the rebellion begins. Now, uh, Parkman compares this to the Germans as described in Tacitus. It's, um, I don't, does he mention Tacitus by name? I don't think so, but he says the great Roman historian. So it must be Tacitus observes of the ancient Germans that when summoned to a public meeting, they would lag behind the appointed time in order to show their independence. The remark holds true and perhaps with greater emphasis of the American Indians. And thus it happened that several days elapsed before the assembly was complete. Um, but then we get this wonderful council described, these different speeches. And some of the, the uh, I, think, I think white people were sort of interested in Indian speeches. And we know that like when presidents and stuff would send delegates to to Indian communities they had to learn to do this it was it was just part of the diplom Indian diplomacy was doing the, the speeches and um, you know they would be swayed it seems by by rhetoric you know in that sense it is kind of more like maybe the Greeks or or the Romans and the the focus on rhetoric it's it's quite nice and you know we're in this political environment where you know speeches don't seem to have that same power right you can, you can see like the, the politicians ignoring you know or, or senators congress people giving speeches before empty halls of congress um there's just that's just for the record right uh just so they can say they said it it's not really to persuade anyone and debate in congress is is, is doesn't have a function really at least not on the on the floor but the indians cared about rhetoric and i i, th I appreciate that it's just, you know i'm not the best with words but you know people that are i respect that i like it i i, I, I like i like compelling uh political speech um and pontiac was good at it apparently because he was able to command the audience and with that we we get into it so this begins on page 340 uh in the library of america edition we're at 516. Uh, so we're over, you know, not quite halfway through. It's a fairly long book, 500 pages or so. But it takes Parkman, you know, a good third of the book to even get to the rebellion itself. So a lot of setup, a lot of ground is laid. And I think that's, that's good. Historians should be able to explain why things happen. That's the whole point, right? They're not just chroniclers. Um, now, the chapter I had the most kind of difficult with difficulty with um, is chapter 11 the treachery of pontiac for reasons i said i just don't like the language and the approach to it now parkman himself doesn't kind of blame them for for using um what's the word we could use instead of treachery um uh this i mean even deceit I, I you know there's no honor in war right and you know the Paxson boys used treachery and deceit to 
to slaughter entire Indian villages. Um, so let's... Uh, the Pakistan boys, by the way, I'll, I'll talk about them next time, were vigilantes in in the colonies, in the I think in Pennsylvania. And there were others, the regulators and such that, you know, were up and down the colonies that started to take matters into their own hands when they felt the British weren't doing enough to stop the Indian attacks and basically used it as an excuse to slaughter Indians. Kind of like... Uh, 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 Bacon's Rebellion, you have that. Um, certainly that's it's a big part of the Indian Wars, and I think more has to be said about that of just how much vigilante groups, you know, inflicted violence on different um, Indian communities, using all sorts of treachery, right? Culminating, of course, in Wounded Knee. Um, but, you know, Parkman says this, All children, says Sir Walter Scott, are natural liars. And truth and honor are developments of later education. Barbarism is to civilization what childhood is to maturity. And all savages, whatever may be their country, their color, or their lineage, are prone to treachery and deceit. The barbarous ancestors of our own frank and manly race are no less obnoxious to the charge than those of the cat-like Bengali. For in this childhood of society, brave men and cowards are treacherous alike. That's a really subtle difference, though. I mean, obviously, this is nonsense to say that somehow... Uh, Honor and, and bravery and truth are, are somehow developments of certain level of civilization. Hogwash, of course. But there's some subtlety here where he says it doesn't mean you're not brave, right? It's in that culture that is bravery. And, and I think if we want to kind of peel away the troublesome language here, we can come at this and say, you know, what is the different military uh, culture, the culture of war? Right. I, I think this is something I first started thinking about when I thought about the how was it that the Spanish, you know, with just a, a few hundred people were able to overthrow empires like the Aztec and the Inca. You know, huge empires. I mean, like like Rome, you know, like the Aztecs were maybe a young Rome, but because the Aztecs were only around for 100 years when they were conquered. But, you know, Tenochtitlan was like one of the biggest cities in the world at the time, if, if not the biggest, if you include like the suburbs. You know, it had irrigation, it had public health systems, it had, you know, I think it even had like indoor plumbing and stuff. I, uh, very, very impressive uh, city. And at the centerpiece of what of, was a massive empire uh, with millions of people. And, you know, how is this overthrown so quickly? Obviously, disease played a role. But so did clashing military cultures, different attitudes of war. Or if we think in like African history, the, the reforms of King Shaka and how King Shaka changed the whole philosophy of war to give the advantage, right? That you can't just look at the weaponry. You can't just look at the, um, the terrain or the tactics. You, you got to look at how war is seen in different cultures. And that can give an advantage. Like if your goal of war, like for the Aztecs, this was true as far as I understand it. Your goal is really to acquire prisoners of war to be slaves or sacrifices or whatever. You're not you're not going to go for maximum casualties. You're you're just going to, you know, try to defeat them on the battlefield and then take most people as prisoners. Same thing if you look at uh, war in Africa, where people were you know people were relatively scarce. Uh, you you had basically underpopulation for most of African history across the continent, sub-Saharan Africa, anyways, and therefore the and especially with the slave trade, you know. The goal of war was to acquire bodies. So you didn't want to kill them all. It, it would have been wasteful. But the European view of war, especially in the age of the Renaissance, the age of 
the holy wars was body count right that's how you defeat your enemy you kill as many of them as as, as you possibly can um so think about uh military culture that, that's the point i'm trying to make but anyways what else does he say perkman say in this part uh, the indian differs widely from the european in his notion of military virtue in his view artifice is wisdom and he honors the skill that he can circumvent no less than the valor that can subdue an adversary the object of war he argues is to destroy the enemy to accomplish this end all means are honorable and it is folly nor folly nor bravery to incur a needless risk had pontiac ordered his followers to storm the palisades of detroit not one of them would have obeyed him they might indeed after their strange superstition have revered him as a madman but from that hour, his fame as a war chief would have sunk forever. Um, so there we actually get the root reason why the siege of Detroit um, is not successful, ultimately. It's because they couldn't do the kind of fight that would have defeated the, the British there. Um, you know, I think at one point he mentions Detroit had supplies for like years. So they could held out the, you know, they could attack troops that try to come in they could cut off supply lines they could do that kind of stuff but they couldn't do what was necessary to actually take the fort and many of the forts they take are taken through some sort of trickery if you will uh, i don't like the word treachery i mean the other reason i don't like the word treachery is pontiac didn't have any obligation to the english he was a foreign leader right in a land that was being conquered by an enemy you know what what it's not treachery if you're fighting your enemy i don't know at least as i understand it treachery would involve some sort of betrayal and there is no betrayal um so anyways with that we start to get into the actual narrative of the of the event a lot of uh he doesn't i mean the centerpiece is detroit and the siege of detroit but uh there's a lot of other campaigns uh talked about around detroit and in surrounding areas and yeah i think he's fairly fairly complete so if you want to kind of dig through this i i just think there's a lot of great stories so like with the <coughs> excuse me the oregon trail i'm not going to tell you all of them i didn't even take that careful notes in this part of the book um just just read actually i listened to it the librivox recording um with with some pleasure um, but a lot of it are just stories of the fall of different forts and, and different battles um, but it all kind of comes back and i think he sort of alternates chapters one chapter about detroit one chapter about other places and um, you know we see the the outcome of the war over the course of of 76 1763 into 1764. wow um i don't know not too much more to say. So we've got a narrative here of the fight of Bloody Bridge. This is the battle that more or less uh, undermined the siege of Detroit, I believe. Um, that was that. And then uh, we got a little narrative of what was going on in Michelamackinac. Michelamackinac saw St. Marie, those forts in the northern part. Of course, Detroit, um, you know where that is. Michelamackinac is uh, like, it's, it's that northern part of, of, of michigan it's that that place between the the upper peninsula of michigan and, and mainland um, michigan uh, it was a fort they're a very important fur trading post um, and that was uh also the site of a siege in 1763 and then the the book one ends with something that's a little bit different and that is a, a 
description of a of a battle, which the chapter is just called the massacre. Um, yeah, actually, this is the description of the the taking of of uh, Michelin Mackinac in 1763. And it's instead of using primary sources, he basically just quotes uh, one of the survivors of it. And I think about half of the fort was was killed. Five people were tortured to death, and that's all described in in, in quite a lot of detail here. Uh, because we get a first-hand account, and the whole thing is essentially quoted, um, and it's a it's, a it's a little bit different than what he normally does. Sometimes he'll quote letters in full at the end of chapters and things, but but this whole chapter is kind of a pieced together documentary history of the taking of Fort Michilimackinac and 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 the the massacre that that followed. Actually, the deceit there was used was uh, the. Ojibwe's who were um, the, the assailants at Michel Mackinac, you know, pretended to be playing sick ball, and then they they hit the ball into the gate, and then attacked the fort. Um, and weapons were smuggled into the fort pre previously, so it was quite brilliantly done. Um, so, anyways, that that takes us to the end of Volume One of the Conspiracy of Pontiac. A lot of narrative history, a lot of stories, a lot of nice stuff. If you're into that kind of military history, so what do we have to talk about? Well, the character of Pontiac, the nature of of how these people were able to unify in this massive effort that that stretched for thousands of miles. Uh, mostly, the fighting was in the Great Lakes region, right? But it it stretches, you know, huge territory. Um, many forts were attacked, many were taken, uh, even though the main one at Detroit failed. Um, and, you know, that how this was organized and achieved and how these Indians were brought together under the leadership of Pontiac. And then the whole idea of like how we approach the, the military culture and, and maybe see that as a real feature of the military history, not just the battles, not just the weaponry, but the actual strategies and attitudes towards war. And sometimes with different cultures, they're very different. And that can lead to different, um, you know, that can explain sometimes victory or defeat for various groups. So anyways, that's it. That's uh, the end of book one of The Conspiracy of Pontiac. So two more episodes. Uh, the next one, I'll focus on, on the Paxton boys which is kind of the bottom-up vigilante violence that emerges uh, as the war drags on. And finally, uh, the conclusion, uh, the ultimate fate of the rebellion in the final episode. So uh, that's going to be it for now. Um, yeah, another short, relatively short episode, but that's okay. Um, next time, yeah, I'll, I'll continue. Part four of The Conspiracy of Pontiac. If you have any thoughts about this book or Pontiac's war, in general, let me know. Send me an email, and I will love to get back to you. Um, but it, hopefully you're reading along. If if not, I will. Well, I, I'm so glad you're listening. Um, but I'll see you next time. I'll, I'll talk to you again uh, as we continue looking through this very, very interesting way, a lack piece for of bread and meat for coffee and for brains. Your 60 days are a hundred or more in your grub. You've got to divide. at night.